The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Very good to see you this Monday morning. Let's give you some headlines. President Trump reportedly looks to bypass safety standards in a bid to fast-track AstraZeneca's vaccine, whilst facing accusations of interference as the FDA gives emergency approval to a new therapy. The FDA has issued an emergency use authorization, and uh, that's such a, a powerful term, emergency use authorization for a treatment known as convalescent plasma. Microsoft backs Epic in its payment battle with Apple as the game maker says the Tim Cook-led company is trying to unlawfully stamp out anyone that might dare oppose them. A mini deal with major consequences. The US and EU agree to cut tariffs of nearly $200 million worth of goods, pointing to easing transatlantic trade tensions. And a historic twin storm scenario. The Gulf Coast of the United States braces for the impact from two tropical storms set to hit at almost the same time this week. Okay, everybody, there's a lot to catch up with politically, coronavirus news, the markets, and of course, we're looking forward to uh, a slightly strange uh, Jackson Hole symposium at the end of the week. But let's get straight to the top story. The US president is reportedly considering mark, uh, fast-tracking an experimental coronavirus vaccine which has been developed in the UK ahead of November's presidential election. According to the Financial Times, the US FDA, Food and Drug Administration, is awarding, quote, emergency use authorization in October for the vaccine, which was developed by Oxford University and AstraZeneca. The British company denied having discussed such an approval for its potential vaccine with the US government. So there's that story. And the FDA has given emergency authorization for the use of plasma to treat coronavirus patients. But some doctors, including White House advisor Anthony Fauci, uh, they've cautioned that more research is needed, but the president hailed the move just one day after he accused the FDA of deliberately delaying coronavirus vaccine trials. The FDA has issued an emergency use authorization, and uh, that's such a, a powerful term, emergency use authorization for a treatment known as convalescent plasma. This is a powerful therapy that transfuses very, very strong antibodies from the blood of recovered patients to help treat patients battling a current infection. It's had an incredible rate of success. Today's action will dramatically expand access to this treatment. Meanwhile, the U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi slammed President Trump for attacking the FDA, calling it, quote, dangerous. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, has a responsibility to approve drugs with their judging on their safety and their efficacy, not by a declaration from the White House about speed and politicizing the FDA. This was a very dangerous statement on the part of the president. Even for him, it went beyond the pale in terms of how he would jeopardize the health and well-being of the American people 
and accuse the FDA of politics when he is the one who has tried to inject himself in the scientific decisions of the Food and Drug Administration. Right, so there's a lot going on here. There's three different things as far as I can see them. And Julianne, I want you to kind of just go through what you think are most important. One, the politicisation of the FDA, potentially, that uh, Nancy Pelosi was referring to there. Uh, two, the plasma news uh, about the, the fast-tracking of that treatment. And three, the news surrounding uh, the story coming out of the FT uh, about their vaccine and where it's at in its stage of development and possibilities uh, for use uh, on the American population. Why don't you take it away with what you think the most important of those three stories is? Steve, good morning, and thank you so much. I want to kick off with the AstraZeneca news. I think that is has potentially the biggest implications here. In terms of where AstraZeneca actually is and whether this is likely to actually happen, approval before the November election, AstraZeneca is running several studies on the University of Oxford vaccine. They've got a 10,000-person study ongoing in the United Kingdom, and we're likely to get data on this one first. But the FDA typically has a rule that they need at least 30,000 participants to have gone through the study protocol before approving the vaccine. They do have a 30-person trial that is underway, but that data is likely to come after the 10,000 person data. So this smaller study not this smaller study not designed to uh, create sufficient data for an approval like this. So that's where we stand in terms of the the data that's likely to come itself. And then the implications if President Trump and the FDA were able to get this over the line before the election. We've talked many times around the skepticism that's been building in the United States around the speed with which the vaccine process is uh, is uh, getting underway. So if we do get an approval that soon, will that actually lead to faster uptake of the vaccine? Not necessarily, not based on what the polls suggest, which is rising skepticism around the the speed with which this process is moving. And AstraZeneca has told the FT that they haven't discussed any emergency use authorization for this vaccine with the U.S. government. And a spokesperson for the Health and Human Services, which includes the FDA, uh, told the FT that any claim that emergency authorization for a vaccine before the election is coming, that's absolutely false. So it looks like this story may uh, may not progress from here. And looking at the data, it seems very hard to have sufficient evidence by then uh, to get a vaccine approved. Look, I mean, it's very clear that there are a large number of people, not only in the United States, but globally, who have great skepticism about the speed of the process of which these drugs are being developed uh, and want to see a full regulatory uh, set of scrutiny in a more traditional sense before uh, these drugs come out. And dare I say it, people take them. The anti-vaxxer movement has a very large cohort globally. But my question here is why are we focusing in this story on the AstraZeneca drug? There are lots and lots of drugs out there, 150 plus, uh, and, and for those in late stage that are seen as very positive, there are, let's say, what, five to 10. So why is this drug being focused on? Do we think that actually it looks like that this could be the one that actually has made the greatest progress and that is why this is the one being talked about? Well, the University of Oxford vaccine is the furthest along. They kicked off late-stage trials right at the beginning of this race. It's also using a tried-and-true method. If we look at something like Moderna or Pfizer and BioNTech, they're using messenger RNA as the technique for, uh, the, the, as the approach they're using for their vaccines. This approach, uh, the uh, viral vector approach that University of Oxford is using, has been approved before. So 
that could potentially be playing in that this is a type of vaccine that the public has seen before and they're for this long when it comes to their trialing. So potentially those two factors uh, affecting why this drug, this vaccine rather, is uh, right at the front of this race. All right. Excellent. Thank you very much indeed. We'll see you, of course, uh, covering all of these stories throughout the rest of the show. So let's take a look at these markets. There is a lot going on at the moment. In fact, even when there isn't a lot going on, I would suggest to you there are catalysts uh, for the tinderbox that is the market concern and volatility left, right and centre, as shown by last week's FOMC results, which quite frankly led to a sell-off in the US uh, and then a rebound. But we didn't get the rebound in European markets after the sell-off. In fact, the sell-off continued on European markets. And yet I thought it was a relative benign statement ahead of key uh, events to come, including Jackson Hole Symposium at the end of this week with uh, uh, the Fed chair speaking and, of course, those FOMC, uh, the real meeting in September as well, where apparently people want even more guidance. They want even more uh, yield curve control commentary. They want more inflation commentary. I think the Fed's giving us a lot already, but apparently uh, not enough for the markets. But as far as today is concerned, uh, we have a big rally going on on the Hang Seng, up 1.4%. Elsewhere, moderate gains across the board. The US markets from last week as well. I'm at pains and I will be at pains as long as I live to explain to you that what you're seeing on the Nasdaq uh, is, of course, another set of records, 40th uh, intraday high of the year and uh, a 36th record closing uh, level of the year. And the S&P rally is quite extraordinary as well. But I'm at pains to explain to you this is not a broad brush rally. Yes, there are 500 stocks in the S&P. But I just want to quote a piece I saw in the FT today just to confirm to you what I've been trying to say for a very long time today. So, for instance, the average S&P stock is what compared with its 52-week high? Bearing in mind, we closed at a record level on the S&P once again on Friday. What is the average stock doing in the S&P? The answer and again, I'm, I'm, I'm using cornerstone macro research for this, which was talked about in the FT today. The average stock in the S&P is down 28.4% from its 52-week high. Okay? Very important you understand. Your average stock is not rallying. In fact, one-fifth of the stocks in the S&P, according to the same research, is more than 50% away from its all-time highs. Just so you know, this is about a few stocks rallying. When we look at this and we look at this, too many people are saying we've come too far as a broader market. We have come too far, perhaps, in your opinion, in certain growth stocks. Again, not for me to comment, but we have not come too far on a vast number of stocks. You need to know that, okay? We need to tell you that because it's just being clouded by these record levels. The Dow. It was up uh, seven tenths of one percent for the week, though. Uh, the S and P was up 0.7 of a percent. The Dow was flat. The Nasdaq again rallying up 2.7 percent. In fact, if you want to know week to date on the European markets, FTSE lost one and a half percent. Let's have a look at the dollar crosses. We're getting close to Luis Costa here, who's a great guest. So you need to hear from him, not me. Uh, the euro dollar trading at 118. The pound given back some of its gains of last week, got up to 132 handle, trading 130.89 at the moment. Dollar yen and obviously pound reacting to those uh, pretty downbeat assessments uh, of the progress from Mr. Frost and Barnier in those Brexit talks. Dolly Yen trading 105.87. Right, let's get to the aforementioned great man himself. Lewis Costa uh, is the head of Semia uh, FX and Rates Strategy at City. Good morning to you, Lewis. How would you typify what's going on in the markets at the moment? Good morning. Good to be in the show. Um, look, I think it's a, you mentioned the dollar and dollar process, and we still believe 
um, the, this reaction in the dollar over the last months that has been one of the major drivers uh, is stabilizing the markets. Um, it's in our view, it's a simple consequence uh, of this unprecedented expansion of balance sheet by the Fed. Um, the effect of FX liquidity, FX swaps, and the push of, of, of market liquidity, um, and the fact that uh, you know there was a debasement in terms of growth, you know, all around the globe. So um, this is not necessarily punishing uh, the euro or other specific currencies, but it's it's being much more of a of a stabilizer uh, in terms of of creating an, a well-behaved dollar. And this is obviously to your point, Steve. I think this is very important to acknowledge that you wouldn't be developing this way without uh, a stable S and P. And I'm also very worried about how narrow the performance in the in U.S. stocks, generally speaking, has been. But you know, it's uh, it's it's also very difficult um, to see uh, a huge change of trend uh, unless the Fed changes its tone. That's really interesting, Lewis. You're picking up on that point about the the lack of breadth in the rally in certain stocks in certain sectors in the United States. You think this has ramifications potentially for broader markets for economic stability? Well, uh, it, it certainly does. I mean, you mentioned tech, right? I mean, I don't want to compare, you know, this market run uh, with, you know, any tech bubble um, uh, from from the 90s. But uh, it's uh, it's obviously an important moment where, you know, all this AUM out there looking for, you know, growth opportunities or they they have been in a way pushed into high tech. Um, and, and that obviously creates I mean, this narrowing effect in terms of flows into the equity markets. And uh, the, but the, it's also important to see that very recently it's not only high tech. We have seen this new flow, uh, which is quite interesting, on the back of of vaccine news or potential vaccine news going into cyclicals um, versus other types of defensives or growth stocks. So. I think that's, I mean, there, there's a lot in terms of anatomy of flows in the equity markets. There's a lot going on. And vaccine news will be an absolutely important catalyst here driving these flows. And you will have consequences to the rate side. That's one very important. The fact that the Fed is not signaling with YCC, which is the right approach. I think it's the right approach. I think it's absurd to talk about YCC now. But the fact that the, the Fed is putting YCC debate uh, to the sideline, that opens the way to upside in U.S. rates, which ultimately can be detrimental to EM. But this is something to be discussed over the next couple of months. Yeah, I mean, you and I and Karen and Jeff over the years have had some brilliant conversations, but we have never had one conversation before now pretty much about YCC uh, and the Federal Reserve. The fact that we are talking about yield curve control, we've even got a new acronym for it, YCC, is, as you quite say, quite extraordinary. What is it that the market is now looking for from Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve that they weren't looking for previously? It seems the handholding is going to just such extreme lengths. I've never seen it before. Look, I mean, I think that the Fed has been very, very clear, right, that uh, the, there is a debate on the efficacy, on the timing of YCC. It's not that the Fed is saying, look, this is absurd. We are not going to touch the theme. I just believe that it's way too early for the markets to be talking about YCC now in the States 
uh, given you know the conditions and given the the potential headwinds and how you know growth is establishing itself as a stop and go variable. Not only the U.S. You mentioned how you how poor the European growth assets have created uh, over the past week. So. I think this is going to be an important point of discussion, but before that, and even with vaccine news coming through uh, over the next couple of months, which I believe they will continue to develop on a positive trend, I do believe that the risk is for 10, 15, 20 basis points higher in U.S. yields, and then we are going to have, we're going to have a more material discussion in terms of timing of the Fed, you know, touching uh, the YCC theme and discussing and implementing something on that sense. I think it's way too early now. Oh, how can it be too early? Those terrifying 10-year yields out there, Lewis, 0.64 of a percent, or those terrifying two-year yields at 0.15. They must be getting people absolutely horrified. There you go, in the 30-year paper, a mighty 1.33%. Let's move on from the Treasuries, Lewis, to your world as well. And your latest strategy piece as of uh, four days ago, what is wrong with EMFX? Well, let me ask you, what is wrong with EMFX? I think it's a, there's a huge discussion and I think it's, it's a fascinating moment because we do have um, a quite different dynamics going on in some of the regions for the emerging markets, right? A much more buoyant uh, market uh, for the MFX in Asia, uh, tracking uh, the appreciation of the renminbi versus the dollar. As, as we said before, I mean, it's been, you know, a glaring weak dynamics for the dollar that helps out international assets. It should help out uh, EMFX quite a lot. But, you know, actually, if you look into, you know, other parts of EM outside Asia, the reaction hasn't been that fantastic. My One of my explanation points to clients, to investors, is that, uh, hey, uh, growth is still stop and go. Uh, it's still extremely uncertain in terms of, you know, at which point we're going to be. And we are talking about GDP growth. We're talking about output. We are not talking about stocks, right? Um, and on top of that, we're still dealing with very low hedging costs for many currencies. Uh, Brazilian real, uh, 2%, 2 handle. Uh, South African rand, 4 handle. Mexico, 3, 4 handle. These are unprecedented low hedging costs for currencies. So global investors will continue to get involved um, in some local currency assets. And it hasn't been pretty much the blockbuster assets, to be very honest with you. But flows will continue to explore that, but on a hedged basis. So I think that the hedging ratios in general haven't been massively reduced because it's becoming cheap to hedge your effects exposure. Hey, Lewis, um, if there's one trade out there that our viewers should try and cling on to, you think the market may be mispricing at the moment, what is it? What's, what's a good uh, tip for our viewers on a Monday morning? Well, I think it's, I mean, we, you started the show with the right theme, right? I mean, it's been an unprecedented contraction of, G- of global GDP, especially in EM. Many EMs are still uh, suffering massively. The Brazils of the world, the Indians of the world. I mean, unfortunately, the COVID story is still a, a huge reality to many of these emerging markets. And, and the one important game changer will be the vaccine. Um, and, you know, your colleague was mentioning, you know, all sorts of, you know, vaccines that are in the market. But from the FDA perspective, it's about safety. So I find very difficult to believe that this is going to be pushed, you know, so fast. But it's, it is. It, I think it's a material possibility to talk about a vaccine or vaccines uh, before December. So 
I do believe that this is going to be the one trading catalyst uh, in the markets in the coming months. And the markets will basically react to it even before the news become you know, material. Brilliant, Lewis. I was feeling a bit Monday morning-ish, got to be honest, sitting here on my own today. Uh, but you've cheered me up no end with your enthusiasm. But Lewis, lovely to speak to you, if not to see you in, the, in person. Uh, Lewis Costa, head of Semia FX and Rate Strategy over at City. Coming up on the show, the US and the EU sign a mini deal to repair relations. More on that story after the break. Plus, uh, for more on the Trump administration's fast track of a new virus treatment, check out the Squawk Box podcast available from all major outlets and, of course, the CNBC website. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Welcome back. More than 800,000 people have now died from coronavirus worldwide as more than 23 million have now been infected. Italy recorded a spike for the first time since May with 1,000 new daily infections. India has topped 3 million cases, whilst Seoul uh, saw the highest daily infection rise since March, prompting authorities to consider stricter lockdown measures. The US nudged past 5.7 million cases despite reporting less than 50,000 daily infections for a seventh day in a row. EU Trade Commissioner Phil Hogan will not step down from his position after attending a dinner last week that potentially broke the Irish government's virus restrictions. Mr Hogan issued an apology for his actions after Prime Minister or the Taoiseach Mr Martin said the Commissioner uh, should consider his position. Ireland's agricultural minister has already stepped down after attending the same function, whilst a host of lawmakers have issued apologies. The US and EU have reached a mini-deal to cut tariffs on around $200 million worth of products. In a joint statement, the chief negotiators of both parties recognise the deal is, quote, part of improving EU-US relations. Well, with more on this story, let's get out to Sylvia. Good morning to you, Sylvia. Good morning, Steve. So indeed, this is an irrelevant uh, agreement by the United States and the European Union in the sense that it marks a de-escalation in tensions between both sides when it comes to trade. In fact, this agreement on Friday that cuts tariffs on US and European goods is the first time that both sides of the Atlantic agreed to cut tariffs over the last 20, for more than 20 years, I should say. And so let me just outline some of the uh, details of this agreement. Essentially, the European Commission said it will end tariffs on U.S. lobster, both live and frozen, 
over the last five years with the view to make that permanent. Now that has yet to be approved by the European Council and the European Parliament, but it essentially a relevant uh, agreement for the president, for the US president Donald Trump, because the US lobster industry has struggled over the last few years in the context of the US-China trade war, as well as by the fact that the European Union itself has also been buying less US lobster after agreeing on a, a wider trade agreement with Canada back in 2017. Now, in return for this, the United States said that it will cut tariffs by 50% on certain European goods. These, these include, for instance, cigarette lighters, um, prepared meals, as well as crystal glassware. Now, when it comes to never, Steve, these are not very relevant. It's quite small in terms of the overall trade between the United States and Europe. But we did hear from both chief negotiators, so Commissioner Hogan on the European side and the US Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer saying that this marks just the beginning of further agreements between the United States and the European Union. And in this context, I wanted to share with you a quote, uh, a statement by a spokesperson from the European Commission who told me yesterday that this package builds on both sides' commitment to find a negotiated solution for the long-standing aircraft dispute. So this essentially tells us that the agreement made on Friday could pave the way for an agreement between the US and the EU over aircraft subsidies. And we're expecting the WTO to essentially uh, rule by the end of the summer the scope for retaliation from the European side on the United States after the latter also gave some state subsidies to Boeing. So this is going to be one important story to keep following over in the coming months. Essentially, what we had on Friday is indeed just a mini deal, but it indeed marks a de-escalation in tensions between both the US and the EU. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.